Hello and welcome to the latest podcast on the history of the book, The Study of Material Text, here at Oxford University. My name is Adam Smythe, and I'm the university lecturer in the history of the book, and I'm delighted to be joined today, this morning, on this beautiful day in Oxford, um, by Henry Woodhouseon, who is who's many things, um, rector of Lincoln College, an author of books that we all know, uh, I guess most famously, Philip Sidney and the Circulation of Manuscripts, which I guess really kicked off that whole mid-90s interest in textual transmission and manuscript and print cultures. And Henry's also the co-editor of the Oxford Companion to the book. So welcome, Henry. I'm sorry, my off- we're in my office here and it does smell of wine. We were just talking about this. We had the finals <laughs> dinner last night and a certain amount of red wine was spilt on the floor and it smells like a vintner's now, but it's, it's, it's not a vintner's. Um, and here we are. <laughs> it's very, it's uh, very compact. Yes, it's yes. a little, little den. Yes. It's a Beckettian <laughs> den. Yes. Um, so, Henry, you were giving the Lyle Lectures this time. Lyle Lectures in Bibliography, which yes. is an annual thing, I think. And your topic was almost identical: copying books in England, sixteen hundred to nineteen hundred. Is that right? Yep. Yep. That's something right. like that. Yeah. So, can you can you give us a to do that impossible thing of give us a, giving us a brief overview of five lectures? Five, in... five, five lectures in five minutes. Yeah. Um, I was mainly talking about facsimiles right. and about <clears throat> facsimiles of books and manuscripts and thinking a bit about the different technologies used mm-hmm. uh, to reproduce books and manuscripts, including by hand um, and engravings and type facsimiles and lithographic facsimiles and the early history of photographic facsimiles and touching just a bit not very much on digital mm-hmm. images of, as facsimiles. Mm-hmm. And my interests lie very much in literature, but I looked at examples of facsimile making in medieval, from medieval manuscripts and in historical and theological works and thought a bit about the relationship between facsimile making and forgery, Mm -hmm. also about using facsimiles or what might be called period printing Mm -hmm. to create new works. Mm -hmm. So I started with a late 19th century German book, which was supposed to be Christopher Columbus's lost journal, thrown overboard in the 1490s and dredged up from the bed of the ocean and bound in a binding covered in bits of sand and um, Mm. shells and seaweed um, and that was then uh, written by hand and reproduced lithographically and uh, supposed to be this lost vital document which of course it's not and then also finished towards um, the end of my last lecture by thinking a bit about the Kelmscott Press Mm -hmm. um, and to what extent if you look at books in the later 19th century, finely produced books, they are themselves um, imaginings Mm -hmm. of what a book from Mm -hmm. an earlier period should be like and Mm -hmm. how you reproduce that. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got a great interest in William Morris. I like Kelmscott Press books, but I'm also well aware that they are not to everybody's taste and that there's something slightly... Um, specious about them. Well, a, they have a sort of particular and curious sort of fantasy of a 14th yeah. or 15th century yeah. book, don't That's they? Right. I mean, they're very 1890s, but they're also <laughs> sort of 14th century, or, or an 1890s version of the, Their idea yeah. of yeah. authenticity is curious, is, is, isn't it? It's curious. And you look at the Kelmscott Chaucer, which um, is so beautiful and um, a very expensive book, 
uh, and one that has retained and increased its value, um, and you could get it in different sorts of bindings, including a binding of pigskin overboard that had been stamped, I mean the pigskin had been stamped so that it <coughs> actually looks like a 14th century or mm -hmm. 15th century manuscript, mm -hmm. which is an extraordinary thing to produce. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, a, that's a phenomenon that interests me. And I tried to trace back to Victorian book production, yeah. um, where you get new works, uh, such as an 1840s novel, mm -hmm. presented as a, a 1550s diary. Um, yeah. And not only with the text set in a, 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 a suitable fashion, but the binding produced. Um, uh, for that edition in the style that they thought was appropriate for yeah. the 1550s. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's, that's fascinating, and they were a fascinating um, set of lectures, and, and hovering, as you say, around, around this term facsimile, and you have this great, one of the nice things about bibliography and history of the book is that we can, have, we can be expansive chronologically, we yeah. can cross centuries yes. in the way you normally can't. Yes. And so this term facsimile, um, does it have different meanings are people trying to do different things with an idea of fidelity and, and accuracy in say the 17th century 18th century 19th century are they is, is their relationship to this kind of fugitive source um, yes shifting, yes it, it, it shifts and it shifts with the technology mm -hmm. um so that for example richard rawlinson mm. uh famous in oxford as a donor to the bodleian um made uh in, had made engraved plates of manuscripts that he was interested in mm -hmm. um, in, this, in this first half of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And he wants these as records that he can refer to and use mm -hmm. uh, in his researches. And he also has uh, engraved plates made of contemporary documents of the non-German church mm -hmm. um, to show that these were official creations of the non uh, that, that bishops and so on were official creations of the non-juring mm -hmm. of the non-juring church and that has a different idea behind it mm -hmm. from say the early use of photography mm -hmm. in the British Museum um, Roger Fenton shortly back from the Crimea where he'd been taking those famous pictures of the British mm -hmm. army and um, so on in in the Crimea then is hired at the British Museum to take photographs of ancient manuscripts, um, which he does. And these are for research purposes, um, so that you are making material more widely available. Um, and the technology allows that. This is the great breakthrough that, through that happens with the invention of lithography in the late 18th century in Germany, um, which spreads very quickly to throughout Europe as a way of reproducing important works mm -hmm. that then become more generally available. Mm -hmm. But there's, there, there's that, but there's also this very strong desire um, to limit. One of the things I talked about, I think, uh, in, in one of my later lectures was, was the desire to limit the number of copies of a facsimile that were, were made yeah. so that only a few people could have it. Yeah. So James Orchard Halliwell, Halliwell Phillips, yeah. liked to make facsimiles of important documents and rare books, but only in editions of six or twelve copies. But why that, why, why, why that anxiety, that sort of John Donne-like, Coterie-like <laughs> yes. interest in restricting? Yeah, no, it's very, it's very strange. I, I, I'm not sure I fully understand it. It's, mm -hmm. it's to create, it's both to, to, to make things more widely available, but also to give them uh, a limited circulation, which will drive the prices up. So I think that, that somewhere in the history of facsimile is also this desire to make new books out of old books and to make 
money out of them. Um, you can't afford, you can't get hold of the original, so you make a facsimile of it, and you make money out of the facsimile that you have made of it. Right. Um, right. And also, always in this, I think there is this, I mean, this is one of the things that interests me most in some of the work I do, which is, what's the relationship between scholarship and book collecting and the market? Um, one of the reasons I became interested in facsimiles was I thought I would never be able to afford 16th and 17th century printed books of the kind that I'd really like to own. Mm -hmm. So why don't I buy 19th century reprints and facsimiles of them? Mm -hmm. And then you start thinking, well, why were these produced? How were these mm -hmm. produced? Um, and it grows from, develops from there. Can I, can I ask about uh, fakes and, and forgeries? Because the technology that you're talking about, which enables um, the production of these... Um, <coughs> of these kind of helpful, um, well-intentioned facsimiles also, also, also prompts fakes and forgeries and, yeah. and, and various kind of compelling tales of scandal with um, um, Ireland, um, I yeah. guess, and Collier as the kind of yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the baddies or the goodies or whoever, whatever side you're on, the interesting figures in this story. Can you say a little yes. bit about, about that? 18th century moment. I think I think it. I think uh, that's a very good question, and it, it starts to a certain extent. I mean, the first famous person really is is um, uh, Macpherson with Ossian, mm. and Samuel Johnson's repeated demand: show us the original manuscripts. Mm -hmm. Where are the original manuscripts? And he can't do it. Um, but out of that comes an interest in medieval Scottish manuscripts which then um, people start to engrave bits of to give a sense of what an Ossianic manuscript, if it existed and survived, would look like. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so that you have this, this double thing. You have forgeries, and then out of interest in the forgeries, you get engravings and reproductions of manuscripts to allow people to make judgments on the originals themselves. And right. this is what happens with Chatterton. Right, right. Um, and Chatterton is much better at forging manuscripts than Macpherson was, and could come up with bits of script and uh, uh, on bits of vellum because he worked in a scrivener's office. So this is a kind of patching together of old, yeah. old bits to yeah. make new, new to make, to to make, make new, new things, which he would then write. Yeah. Uh, but he would write them in the right in the in the in the um, what he thought was the appropriate script for the time. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you get the same thing with Ireland, where you have Ireland uh, or Ireland's father. Ireland's father, Samuel Ireland, was an engraver, mm -hmm. and publishes. Ireland, his son's forgeries, which he engraves. And then Malone, who wants to expose this as a forgery, um, publishes authentic engravings of real documents and says, look at this and look at this, and one is a forgery mm. and one is not. So out of, out of forgery comes new scholarship. Right. And uh, the new scholarship shows why the the supposed items are, are forgeries. Yeah. You get something um, slightly similar. I use the example of Thomas James Wise and Harry Buxton Foreman's forgeries of pamphlets that Carter and Pollard exposed in an inquiry into the nature of certain 19th century pamphlets in, I think, 1938, um, where they start showing through photographic facsimiles, how Wise did it. Um, and they got the firm of, they, they have a page of Wise and Buxton Foreman's uh, fake 
um, mocked uh, a, a poem by, I think it's Elizabeth Barrett, and then they asked the same firm of printers, Richard Clay, to set the same page up in types that they still had mm -hmm. 50 years later, and the two are identical, mm -hmm. um, showing how you can do it. Mm -hmm. so, so facsimiles um, uh, uh, allow people to create forgeries, but they also provide the means by which forgeries are detected. Yeah, that's fascinating. The, yes, the way, that, the way there's... The scandalous cases of forgery kind of catalyze and build the skills and, and the production yeah. of facsimile, which, which yeah. we, we all celebrate, we, we, we draw yeah. on today. Um, can I, about Ireland, I mean, they look, you showed the images of them, um, his Shakespearean forgeries, Shakespeare's hand. I mean, they look preposterous today, yes. don't they? I mean, yes. they wouldn't, they look yes. like um, my sort of six-year-old yeah. did it. Yeah, um, but, that's, but that's partly because people didn't have access to high-quality, accurate images mm. of what 16th, 17th century handwriting looked like. Right. You had a couple of books. I mean, you had much more with medieval manuscripts mm -hmm. because people like um, the great um, early paleographers um, like um, uh, Mabillon and Montfaucon um, had produced guides to it, and Humphrey Wanley was working on this subject in the early late 17th, early 18th century in England. Um, but there was very little about later um, handwriting, 16th, 17th century handwriting, um, until the 1770s, 1780s, um, when, when a man called Wright published his Court Hand Restored, and that was the book for teaching people how to read 16th and 17th century handwriting, and was until, probably until the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the books that you had to have and to work from. Mm -hmm. And then you get later collections of, of photographic facsimiles with transcriptions that you may remember from um, doing paleography, <laughs> learning how to read that hand secretary yeah. and yeah. yourself. Yeah. People didn't have a very good idea. And if they didn't go to a major library, and the major libraries were limited to London and um, Oxford and Cambridge, but it wasn't easy to get into Oxford and Cambridge libraries. Mm -hmm. There was nothing for you to find out mm -hmm. what 16th century handwriting really looked mm -hmm. like in mm -hmm. England. And, the, so, and these forgeries bring into being the, those kind of resources that, yeah. that, that, that can That's educate right. people. Can I ask about um, Collier? Because he seemed, John Payne Collier, because he seemed, there's quite, yeah. there's that, there's that big book by the Freemans recently. Freemans, yes. Um, Very big book. Yes. <laughs> he seemed, he seems like an intriguing figure because there's lots that he does which is right and accurate yeah. and, and, and scholarly. Yeah and useful and then what looked like moments of you know, playfulness forgery I mean what, yes. what, what's what do you think he was up to in doing well, I think, that I think, mix of, of, of kind of modes yes I think I think you're quite right I think there is a playfulness there um, I think I think Arthur and Janet Freeman would would agree with that mm. there's playfulness there's mischief making there's a bit of trying to make money mm. and there's a bit of thinking that what is missing, what we don't know, he has a sort of duty to supply. Um, so that he knows the period and the subject better than anyone else, pretty much at the time. And if you can't find um, uh, an early witness to this reading in Shakespeare, say, or this attribution of authorship in the Stationers' Register, which sounds right or looks right, he will supply it, and that will—that's a service to scholarship mm -hmm. as much as a deliberate piece of forgery. Right, right, right. Um, so that the the famous example of the, the second folio, mm -hmm. and the Collier folio, he—I he, think the evidence is pretty clear. He writes the material in, the new readings in, and some of the new readings are actually quite good new readings. <laughs> 
but they're new. They're not 17th century, as he tried mm -hmm. to make them be, mm -hmm. or when he alters attributions in the stationer's register, mm -hmm. which he does. Mm -hmm. um, these are attributions that he thought was right, and he was offering a service to yeah. the scholarly community. He's sort of bringing to. truths into being that yeah. aren't sort of literally there, but, but yeah. should be there. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. But mean. there's also a financial motive. I mean, right. That, that, that his books passed to his, I think his nephew, F.S. Ouvry, O-U-V-R-Y, uh, who's mixed up with George Eliot in various interesting ways as a solicitor. Mm -hmm. And Ouvry's sale has lots of books um, with forged inscriptions, um, which are sold by Sotheby's um, when Ouvry dies mm -hmm. and create money for the family or, or give them a, some money to the family, which uh, is quite an interesting uh, phenomenon. But again, they're books that Collier obviously felt his favoured authors should have owned. Mm -hmm. And if they, he couldn't find the actual copy, he'd create the copy for them mm. to own. And was, I mean, was the 18th century a great, a great, the great period of these kind of forgeries? Is it still going on now, do you think? Other people in the British Library of the Bodleian adding in kind of... Um, convincing almost true notes in the margin or was that time gone are we all I, too kind of aware of paleography and I think editing? We're, we're a bit aware more aware than we were and there are more people interested and the technology again allows you to study mm -hmm. it more closely um, I think it's not so much forgery that goes on as hoaxing mm -hmm. um, as, as trying to show that the scholarly community is wrong about something um, so you create something that is that is false, in the hope that it will make it will show that the the scholarly world doesn't really understand what it's looking at, and that's the fun of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I, I don't think so much that I think what does happen a lot still, and I touched on this, and I'd like to say more about it, is making imperfect books mm. perfect. Um, and that is something that's been going on the, in the book trade uh, for a long time. Is that uh, patching together, patching missing together, pages and missing pages? Putting, putting leaves from one copy in another copy or putting whole gatherings mm -hmm. in another copy. That still does go on. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a certain amount of, with some of the really good high quality early 19th century uh, type facsimiles, of removing material that shows they are modern so that they are made to appear to be 16th or 17th century. Mm -hmm. And I think that does go on um, a bit. Yeah. Uh, book dealers used to have what were called hospitals um, in which they would, they would keep broken and incomplete copies of books uh, in... For, the, for, 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 for occasions when they'd buy a, a, a good copy that was missing a page, a leaf or two, and they'd stick it in from their broken copy. Yeah. Um, and that still goes on. Because um, in a funny way, I mean, that, that, that kind of reproduces or sustains an early modern attitude to books. I mean, yeah. we know through the work of people like Tiffany Stern and others mm. that, that play texts were kind of had, had, had moving parts and, and bits might be cut out and put in other yeah. texts. We know things were sold unbound or that the, the, the boards might be filled out with unwanted pages from other books. So there yeah. was a certain, there were always in early book book, there was a certain amount of, of that kind of stuff yeah. going on. So there's yeah. a continuity there, yes. I guess. Yes, that's there? right. Yes, I mean, it, it, I think it happens a great deal, mm -hmm. um, much more than one thinks, and um, is actually really rather fascinating. Yeah. Um, I mean, although one might deplore it, it makes very interesting stories, the most famous of which is, is that concerning Thomas James Wise, 
um, Harry Buxton and Foreman's partner, who, and they not only forged pamphlets, but Wise is known uh, to have gone to the British Museum, as it then was, and cut out leaves from books, especially 17th century plays, mm -hmm. cut out leaves, take them home to his house in Hampstead and stick them into his copies um, of the same book to make his copy a better copy and put leaves back, his inferior leaves, back in the British Museum copy. Um, and there's a wonderful pamphlet by David Foxon about this that's well worth reading, um, Thomas James Wise and the Restoration Drama, um, pre-Restoration Drama. Um, and the irony, of course, was that having swapping these leaves destroys the bibliographical integrity of the British Museum copies because you have um, leaves in different corrected and uncorrected states from the rest of the gathering. Because after Wise's death, uh, his library, known as the Ashley Library, um, was then sold by his widow to the British Museum. So you have in the British Library now, you have the doctored British Library copy of the, this pre-restoration drama uh, uh, with with some of Wise's leaves in it and Wise, Wise's own library with some of the British Library leaves in it, wow. which is, I mean, very bad behaviour. <laughs> um, but but uh, I, I was doing a bit of work on this, a subject I'm going to write more about. Um, which is that when you look at the Garrick collection of plays, also in the British, now in the British Library, which is one of the first big collections of Shakespearean drama, a very high proportion of the copies um, can be shown to be made up from more than one copy. Um, they're not in their original condition. Uh, leaves have been swapped and gatherings have been swapped and moved around. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, Shakespeare First Folios are patched yes, like that. There's one in Glasgow. Yeah, in that's right. Similarly, yes. similarly, yes. similarly constructed. Yes. Um, can I can 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 I ask you finally uh, to say a little bit about inevitably about the digital? All bibliographical discussions kind of have to end with the digital. Yes. Don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Where? Um, how is this changing uh, this idea of copying and, and, and facsimiles and um, the reproduction or patching together of old, 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 old books. Your mm. lectures are kind of charting a relationship, I guess, between shifting technological forms and ideas of, mm. of copying. What's, what, have you got a sense of what the digital is, is contributing to that, how things are changing? Well, the digital, I'm not sure how it's changing things. I mean, in writing the lectures, I was, the task was made possible by the enormous amount of um, digitisation that the Bodleian has gone in for. Um, uh, with, um, on its own account, and also by having uh, early English books online yeah. and 18th century collections online, both of which are amazingly useful. Um, and um, it, it was possible with Echo to do a great deal of searching of 18th century books for reproductions of manuscripts and early printed books simply by using the illustration um, tab, pulling that down and seeing what illustrations were in the book, mm -hmm. which otherwise would take you a long time ordering the books and then going through them volume by volume, mm -hmm. but this takes you immediately there. Um, what one has to be always um, aware of uh, is the infallibility, sorry, is the fallibility of people making digital images, that <coughs> um, there are mistakes and omissions. Um, in in echo of plates and material um, that it should be there that is not there always very hard to find 
Um, and of course, the main point is that they're reproducing just one copy, and yeah. you have no idea what the history of that copy is. Yeah. Uh, you have no no real way of looking at it, in uh, uh, so that you see its bibliographical makeup. I mean, that's one of the things that that especially Echo just makes disappear. You can do it a bit on Ebo because you can work out a collation of the book without too much trouble on Ebo, but with Echo, it really is very difficult to do. Um, all of which takes us back to the idea that um, these are not innocent um, digital images. They all have, an, uh, have all sorts of um, problems that come with them, um, and that they are, uh, of course, additions in their own right. Um, and that's the bit that um, uh, one needs to remind oneself all the time of, um, that they're not um, uh, without problems and without an editorial hand which is very often uh, which very often does things which you are not aware of mm -hmm. uh, in the choice of copy in what is presented and what is not presented and how it is presented they are editorial constructs yeah and one's very aware of those mediations when you literally see the editorial hand in ebo yeah. i'm very fond of those moments where you get fingers yes when you get fingers or hands <laughs> or sometimes plaintive little notes about this is too fragile to yeah. to photograph yeah. and you get a sense suddenly of the, yeah. of the microfilm yeah. room in michigan in the 60s or 70s yes. whenever it was <laughs> yes that's right and doing this and of course with ebo one has to remember um uh, that these are digital images of microfilms yeah. of the original yeah. um and uh, that there are, unless one looks carefully at the metadata, one can be taken in that there are several, I don't know how many, um, but quite a few um, books on eBay that are actually late 18th or early 19th century facsimiles mm -hmm. and that are reproduced. And that you may look at a book and not realise that a leaf is a 19th century type facsimile of the original, or even a hand facsimile, mm -hmm. a hand copied um, facsimile um, of, of the original. So you think you're seeing something, but you need to be a bit sceptical about what you're seeing. No doubt they are wonderful. Um, I'm all in favour of them. I think digitising books is a great idea, but the user has to be aware of the limits of what they're looking at, mm -hmm. and that they are and I think the great Tom Tansell has, has in his writings about facsimile, which are, which are um, been enormously helpful and stimulating, as everything is that he writes, um, uh, that they are not a substitute for the original. Mm -hmm. uh, they can never be the substitute. And it's quite interesting, some of the work I've done for the Malone Society, where we have moved over from uh, type facsimiles or semi-type facsimiles <coughs> of printed plays to using uh, digital images and reproducing those, when we've been working on those, looking at the different effect that different sorts of paper mm. produce on digital image, when digital images are reproduced on them, mm. gives you a sense of the editorial um, process by which you can change the appearance of a play and its readability. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. In an earlier podcast, I was talking to Will Knoll from um, um, the University of Pennsylvania about, about similar issues, and his, his point was that digital copies of books shouldn't be seen as surrogates for books, yeah. but, as, but as different things, yes. as, as, yes. as, as a different yeah. form. No, I, think that's, I, think that's, I, I think I went to his lecture, and uh, right. that, uh, that's, I thought that was a very good point and well made. Yeah. Um, yeah that they are not surrogates, they are something else. Yeah. Um, very useful, 
but they're not the thing itself. But even when you think you're looking at the thing itself, you may not be looking at the thing itself, which is the part that that really interests me. Yeah, Um, yeah. I think on that... um, Bibliographical Borgesian <laughs> uh, final point. I think we should draw to a, a close. Henry, thanks very much for coming in and talking to me about our copies and, and facsimiles. And um, thank you, listeners, for listening um, wherever you are. And do uh, listen again for a future podcast on the history of the book um, coming soon. Thank you. Thank you.